to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. You can go ahead and have a seat, and as you do, keep Revelation chapter 2 right there in front of you. As Curtis was reading this, there's uh, something that we, uh, we have to acknowledge. We have to uh, let the Word of God con confront us, lovingly confront us. Um, but we just have to look each other in the face today and acknowledge the reality that this letter communicates. And the reality this letter communicates is this, that it's possible, listen to me now, Redeemer, it's possible for us to be passionate about truth, passionate for the purity of the church, passionate for sound doctrine and right orthodoxy, and yet all the while growing colder and colder in our love for God and love for people. I really, I really got, we really have to let that sink in. It is passionate to be hard and fast Bible people. Bible's in our middle name, y'all. We're all about the word of God here. And as we're doing that, studying in it, growing in it, even teaching it to be growing colder and colder in our love for God and people. And we think, how does that happen? Well, it's this letter to the Ephesian church that will give us clues as to how that happens and what to do if that is happening. Um, whenever this happens, Jesus is so loving. He loves his people so much. He's passionate about calling it out. And that's what we have in this letter here. Jesus is going to commend the church at Ephesus for some things, and he's going to call out the church at Ephesus for some things. But I, I want us to turn to the beginning of this letter here, uh, of chapter 2, verse 1. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now, it's interesting that in each of these letters, right, it'll start and it says, to the angel of the church, to the angel of the church, to the angel of the church. The, these angels of the churches that we were introduced to in chapter 1, they're, there's these, they're these representative agents of these churches. They also uh, serve as, uh, you know, serve a role in being messengers to these churches of what the Lord is saying. And so you have this address to the angel of the church where? Where? 
in, in Ephesus, in the city of Ephesus. Now, we spent all fall studying this letter to the Ephesians that would have been, I believe, would have been studied in Ephesus and then uh, circulated around probably to even a lot of these churches we're going to see addressed in the beginning of Revelation. Uh, but I want us to understand something about the church at Ephesus. Uh, this, this church at Ephesus was a once strong and thriving church. In fact, uh, this week with your, um, uh, with your study guide that we provide along with this series, um, do, uh, take some time to look at the beginning of the church at Ephesus. Turn to Acts chapter 8, uh, Acts chapter 18 and Acts chapter 19 and see Paul and Aquila and Priscilla working to see the church established in the city of Ephesus. Uh, this was a church with a strong beginning. Uh, this is a church that from the beginning experienced strong persecution because of their strength in the Lord. Uh, right away as the, the, the way of Jesus that was often referred to, especially in Ephesus, uh, the people of the way, um, as it is, is growing and people are coming to the Lord, some of the silversmiths, the craftsmen of the city, they get so nervous that this way of Christianity is going to overtake their city and it's going to uh, hamper their economy. They made these little silver statues of the great goddess Artemis, who we'll talk more about as the sermon goes on. But they got so worried, this is going to impact our wallet, that a riot erupts in the city over this way of Jesus. So this is a strong church with a strong beginning, strong persecution from the beginning because of their strength in the Lord. And this is a church that throughout its history had some extremely strong leadership. I've told you already of Paul's role in the church and Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos taught in Ephesus and, and Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus to put some things in order there. And so you have a strong beginning, strong persecution, strong leadership throughout it, and then there's, but, but, but there's something that has happened to this church over time. And Jesus loves them so much that he, he has a letter to address this. And so as this letter begins, they will be commended, celebrated for something they have done so well throughout the history of their church. And then they will be called out by Jesus. And I believe this letter is really all about this, that what we're making our prayer today. Lord, make your church passionate for purity and permeating with love. God, make your church passionate for purity and permeating with love. God, both and of those, not just one or the other, passionate for purity and permeating with love. And now this, this letter has a fairly, uh, fairly clear structure to it. And we want the structure of our sermon to take on the same structure that we find in this letter. And so uh, today we're going to see the positive what are they commended for? We're going to see the problem. What are they called out for? We're going to see the plan that Jesus calls them to to solve that problem. And then we're going to close this letter with a beautiful, beautiful promise. Listen to me now. We can't miss the promise. Don't miss the promise. Let me just tell you now, we're going to get in the middle of this sermon, and, and there's a heavy call to repentance in the middle of this sermon, but we're going to keep our eyes up in the midst of that because the Lord ends this letter with a beautiful reminder of the promise at hand for these people. But we need to pray, and let's let what the Spirit is saying to the churches speak to this church here today. You with me, church? God, help us. 
Please, Lord. Lord, our hearts can get dull, desensitized to the promptings, to the whispers of your spirit. Uh, Lord, some of our consciences even in here today may be seared. God, awaken our hearts through your word today. What do you have to say to us through your word? What might you have been saying to the church at Ephesus that you long to communicate to the church at Redeemer? You've recorded these words in your inspired word for your people to study throughout all of your time. Please, God, align our hearts and the priorities of our hearts and the priorities of this church, your church, around what you say, God, please. In Jesus' name, amen. So it says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. And now I want you to notice how Jesus is described at the beginning of this. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. At the beginning of each of these letters to each distinct church, Jesus is described in a different way that will point us back to the big description we looked at last week in chapter one. And so he's described to Ephesus as uh, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Remember, chapter one, verse 20, told us those stars are the angels of the churches. Uh, the one who walks amongst the seven golden lampstands. The seven golden lampstands are the churches. And so right from the beginning, Jesus is setting the tone of the letter. And here's what I believe he is communicating. The church at Ephesus was often considered kind of the mother church of these other churches throughout Asia Minor. And uh, they, they, God had given them a prominent place, a prominent leadership position. They are a church in a prominent city that we will talk more about in a minute. Jesus, from the beginning of this letter, wants to communicate something to them. You may be considered a mother church, and I may have used you in my providence for many good things throughout the church at Asia Minor. Ephesus, you might be the mother church, but I'm the Lord of the church. I'm the holder of the seven stars. I'm the one in the midst of the lampstands. And Jesus from the beginning is calling them from a place, a position of pride to a place of humility. The one who holds the seven stars, the one in the midst of the seven lampstands, this is the one who writes to you, Ephesus. And here's what he says. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. There's the positive. What's the positive? Here it is. The positive for this church and in all of Jesus' churches, what Jesus will commend is this. Jesus loves a passion for purity and patient endurance in his people. Jesus commends this in them. Their passion for purity. Look at what he says here. I know your works. I know you toil. I know your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. 
Church at Ephesus, you've done a great job standing up against those who are evil, not letting them infiltrate in the midst of the church, taking bold stands for what I say, what God says is good and true and right. He goes on to say, you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. Church of Ephesus, good job. As people have come into your midst, Claiming to be representatives of God or teachers of God, you have put them to the test. You have laid the apostles' teaching next to to their teaching, and you have proven them to be false. Ephesus, good job. The Lord is pleased when his churches will stand for what he defines to be good and true and right. The Lord is pleased when the church stands up against that which is evil. The Lord is pleased by that. Do you believe that, church? Because one of the great temptations is to believe that to be loving is to deviate from sound doctrine that's not culturally popular. That's not loving. That's not loving. Jesus will commend his churches who stand against what he says is evil and stand for what he says is good and true and right. Jesus will commend his churches who call out false teaching and false teachers. It's not popular. It won't get you famous on TikTok. We don't give a rip. We want to one day stand before him as a body of his believers, and hear well done from him. And he commends Ephesus for this. You have done such a good job. Now listen to me. This is, this is no small commendation. When you understand the city that this church was in, you realize all they did to stand for what is good and true and right. A, a, a little background on the city of Ephesus. A city of Ephesus was rich, extremely wealthy, and cosmopolitan for its day. I want us to think of Paris, Singapore, New York City type of thing. In its wealth and in its cosmopolitan makeup, the city of Ephesus was carnal to the core. A rampant, rampant carnality in the culture of the city. This was influenced by a couple different things. The first I would note is this. Um, The great goddess of the city of Ephesus was the goddess Artemis. I've already mentioned her. And if, if, if if we lived in that day and we came to the city of Ephesus, you couldn't come into the city and not notice the prominence of Artemis just based on the size of her temple. Uh, the, the temple to Artemis would have been about a football field and a half long by a football field wide. 127 pillars lined the outside of this temple. Almost everything, uh, everything about the culture in some way was influenced by Artemis. The celebrations, the city celebrations that centered on uh, the worship of Artemis would have ended at the temple or other parts of the city with just uh, gross acts of sexual immorality. Like, so detestable, it's not even helpful to mention any more than that in a sermon. 
sexual immorality rampant because of the effects of Artemis. The brothels just out in the open. And so when, when the church at Ephesus is commended for standing for what is good and true and right and doing it in a way where they have patient endurance, long-suffering endurance, you have to understand the absolute warfare, spiritual warfare, they would have been in from an idolatry and an immorality standpoint. But not only was it the worship of Artemis and other gods, emperor worship was prevalent in the city of Ephesus. Again, if we were in Ephesus, you would have done life in the agora or the marketplace. And every time you would have made your way into the marketplace, the, the town mall, the agora, you would have come under the arches and the arches would read to Caesar Augustus, who is God. And so to, 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 when, when we read about taking stands against what is evil or stands against what is false teaching, there was so many attempts, and we'll see one reference later in the letter of the Nicolaitans, to intermix somewhat of Christian teaching with immorality and idolatry and emperor worship. And the church at Ephesus has said, no dice. We don't do that. We stand for what is good and what is true and what is right. And, and, if, and if Jesus commends this in his church, Redeemer Bible Church, don't we want to be commended in the same way? We are a Bible church, and we are a Bible church unapologetically. We try to let that seep into every single thing we do and every way we think about ministry. Every single Sunday you show up here, the first words out of whoever's preaching will be, open your Bible too. That's a weekly declaration that we don't have anything of the wisdom of man to stand on. Open the book and say what it says. That impacts the way we think about how our elders shepherd the church. They're responsible for doctrine, sound doctrine, for direction that's built around that sound doctrine, and for discipline to correct those who are, are, are wayward or are seeking to bring evil or false teaching into the midst of the body. It's what the elders are called by God to do. It's how we think about discipleship. Right now across the hall today throughout two services, hundreds of kids will gather and they're being discipled in the word of God, not babysat while we're in here. And a whole team of people sacrifice so much, not just on Sunday morning, but in preparation all week to disciple our kids. It's how we think about our students who will come in here tonight. They'll be discipled in the word of God to know what God says is good and true and right. It's how we think about what happens on Wednesday nights when our young adults will come in here and be discipled from the word of God about what is good and true and right. It's how we counsel people. We believe in biblical counseling. We open the book and we say what it says because God's word has answers to life's problems. We're a Bible church. Because we want to know what God says is good and true and right. And we want to hold to that and we want to hold to it with patient endurance. Long-suffering endurance. Even if it's not, even if God's position on a matter isn't the popular take, we want to take a long-suffering posture to go, God, whatever it costs us, we're not going to deviate from it. Now, it scares me 
it really, really scares me. It scares me for my own heart. It scares me for your heart. It scares me for our church that we could do that with excellence and be growing colder and colder and colder in love as we do. Is that not terrifying? And this is what the Lord calls out. Verse 4. But I have this against you. And I, guys, I, I sit in the um, weightiness of the language he uses. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Church at Ephesus, great job. You've withstood against evil. You have tested false, uh, false apostles and you've proved them false. You've been passionate for what is good and true and right, but I have this against you. You have abandoned, you have left the love you had at first. Here's the problem in this church. Jesus grieves when we leave the love we had at first. Jesus is grieving. He's going, Ephesian believers, I remember. I remember the zeal in which you worshiped me. I remember when the city was riding against you. And I, and I remember how you stood firm. And I remember the passion you brought to the sharing of the gospel. And I remember how you'd gather and humbly depend on one another. And I remember how you'd sacrifice like crazy for each other. I remember the love you had. The love for me and the love for your fellow believers and the love for the lost. I remember all that love. And you've abandoned it. You have left it. What was once a fire that burned ablaze inside of them had dwindled to some glowing embers. And listen to me, church, God is not okay when, with glowing embers when he has called us to be a roaring wildfire of love for his glory. On our property, there are two areas for fires. If there's a fire on our property, not in one of those two areas, it's bad. The first area is the bonfire pit. The bonfire pit is directly behind the house. It's landscaped nicely. We've got large rocks in a perfect circle. Some pea gravel around that, some more rocks on the outside of it. We build a little fire in there. We seek to contain it to that circle. And we invite friends and family over and cook s'mores and have great conversation. On the other end of the property is the burn pile. If I could do the Tim the Toolman Taylor, I would. Because the burn pile is where we drag the dead limbs, we pile them high, we light the match, and we let it fly. I had it so high one time, a guy actually stopped in the middle of the road and cussed me out. I was like, how bad does your day have to be to see someone else's fire and just stop and cuss them out for it, right? The burn pile is where it's in a safe place. 
but we let it grow wild, we let it get big, we let it get high, and we let it burn. And I stand back and I feel my face melt and I smile the whole time. <laughs> the Ephesian church has gone from burn pile love to bonfire love to some glowing embers love. And Christ loves them too much to be okay with it. Can you relate? I, I can. Right? Like, I'm, I'm so convicted by Revelation 2, verse 4. It brought back so many sweet, sweet memories of the love I had at first. I've told you many times, I grew up in the church, I knew all the right answers, I could quote you the scriptures, I could sing you the songs, I could do all that. And at 19, God, by his grace, truly saved me. And with the spirit of God now indwelling my heart, he lit inside of me a fire of love for him and others. And I look back at the college years and think about the way the gospel was witnessed out of my mouth, the fire I had for the word of God, how I studied it. And now, like, here we are in 2022, and I'm turning the corner into 35 this year, and I look and I go, is the fire burning as hot at 35 as it was at 19? I believe this is what Jesus is communicating. Remember, there, uh, uh, but I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Can you relate? I know all of our stories are different in here. But there's something to that fresh excitement that the Spirit of God works in a heart when we are still literally in awe of the miracle that not only did he save me, he would save me. And how that ignites us with love, a passionate love for him, a passionate love to get together with other believers and go, how can we grow together? Like, how do we grow? He's just awesome. How do we grow together? More into that. To walk around in that newfound excitement of the good news and go, are you saved? Do you know Jesus? I, uh, there's a, a pastor in Brazil. I, l I love this story. He uh, was in, uh, somehow got from Brazil to California, and um, someone had given him the word of God, and he's reading the word of God. He, I think he was like taxiing or something, driving a taxi. And he's reading the word of God, and he's sitting in like a, a hotel lobby, and he's reading the word of God, and all of a sudden, the word of God exposes his heart. He gets saved. God saves him in that moment. He sees his sin. He sees Jesus as a good Savior. He surrenders his life to the Lordship of Christ. And he just gets up and goes around the lab. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? And now we might think that's a little crazy. People might think that's crazy. You can't squelch the fire, though, of genuine passion for the Lord. And, 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 and dare I say, I think what can happen is that wildfire that's raging of love for God and people that we have in the beginning, we begin to build the nice little neat fire ring and just go, just let it burn here. I'll let it burn on Sundays because it's safe with you all. Just don't let too much of that fire outside of that ring during the week. And the Lord says to the church at Ephesus that he's got that against them. They've abandoned the love they had at first. Now listen to me. 
if we're convicted by that, Jesus is so good and loving to us that he gives us a plan. He tells us what to do if that's true of us. Like literally in the very next verse, he's like, Ephesian church, I love you. I'm going to keep pursuing you. Even though your love has grown cold, I'm going to keep going after you. Here's what you need to do to get back to the love you had at first. Verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Look Look at the three commands in there. Remember, repent, do the works you did at first. Or as I'm saying it here, here's the plan. Jesus calls us to remember, repent, and return. Jesus calls us to remember, repent, and return. I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. What do we do? Jesus, what do we do if that's true of us? First, you remember. Look back. Think about what it was like when that fire for the Lord and love for people was burning hot. Think about that season. Remember that season. But you've got to know something about that word. That word is not just remember in such a way that just look back and go, oh, man, those were the good old days. Man, that was good. Those years of walking with Jesus at Wabash, that was good. Man, too bad I can't get back to that. No, no, no. It's a remembering that is to initiate action. What's the action the remembering should initiate? Repentance. What's it mean to repent? To have a change of mind, a change of heart, to turn. So you remember what that was like. That remembering should lead your heart to a place of repentance. Oh, you're right. You're right, Lord. You're right. Man, my love for you was so burning hot at that time. My love for people was so on fire at that time. I remember that, Lord. I repent. I repent for letting it grow cold. I repent for just being okay with lukewarm. I repent for that, Lord. I want to turn. What's he say? How do we turn? How do we turn? Do the works you did at first. Return. Return. That's huge. So like this should have applicational teeth for every single one of us sitting in this room. Because if, if, if we're convicted by the word of God today and we're going, no, no, no. Back to when the fire was burning hot. Back to the love that we had. Back to the love we know that Jesus wants us to have. Lord, I repent. I repent I'm turning from being okay with, uh, with this lesser bonfire or glowing ember kind of love. I'm coming back to a roaring wildfire for you. How do we do that? We do the works we did at first. Now listen to me. Some of you this week won't feel like doing the works you did at first. Some of you right now, let me ask you this. How's, how's it going feasting from the word of God in your life? How's it going feasting from the word of God? And, and some of us in here, we are all in different seasons. Some of us go, I, it's convicting. I don't have time in the word of God like I should. And so you're going to go home today. You're going to set your alarm a half hour earlier. And then in the morning, believe it or not, if you set your alarm a half hour earlier, your alarm's going to go off a half hour earlier. And then in the morning, you're going to say, but I don't feel like getting up and getting the word. Guess what? Let your actions tow your emotions, not your emotions tow your actions. Get your butt out of bed. Get your face in the word of God and let the action of that lead your heart to encouragement for the rest of the day. 
But don't lay in bed and go, I don't feel like getting up. Do what you did at first. Do what you did when you were so enamored by the word of God. It literally got you out of bed. Do the works you did at first. How's our prayer life going? Guys, I told the Lord this week, I'm like, God, I'm like praying. I'm like, God, prayer is hard. Like, God, if I can just be honest for a minute, where are you? I feel like I'm talking in the air. I, prayer is hard. Guess what, Brock? I don't care that you feel like prayer is hard. Pray to the God of the universe. And let your emotions, or let your actions tow your emotions. Remember, guys, remember, remember, remember. Let's repent. And let's do what we did at first. Let's come back. And let's let those things stir and stoke the fire. How fulfilling is it when you take glowing embers and you start to blow on it and stir and stoke it and you see a flame and then you feed that flame with wood and that flame starts to grow? Man, when, when my burn pile gets down to glowing embers and I go out there and I just, and boom, back it goes, I'm like, let's go, baby. And then guys stop on their own, cuss me out, and I'm like, bring it. Higher. More. Remember. Repent. Return. Now, after this warning, I want to come right into verse 6. After this warning, he goes back to, okay, but I want to commend you again for something. And he's calling out one of these specific groups. Yet this you have... You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We don't know much about the specifics of this group. From the best we can tell, they were most likely one of these groups that had mixed in some Christian teaching with uh, rampant immorality and idolatry. Uh, a lot of people believe the Nicolaitans taught that the body doesn't matter. So go be as sexually immoral as you want. It doesn't matter. It's not your soul. And Jesus is like, yeah, I hate their teaching. In Ephesus, good job that you hate it too. But then he, he ends this letter with a promise. Y'all listen to me. This promise is beautiful. This promise is to give us the, it's to give us the unction for any of the repentance and changing we need to do. Because every time, I know, I know, listen, look at me, look at me, every, every eye look at me. I walked out of first service, I was like, something was off, something was off. And it's, I didn't, do a good, I didn't do a good enough job bringing out the promise in which the letter ends with. Because messages of repentance are hard and heavy. You with me? We're convicted. Anyone convicted right now? Look, we're convicted. I'm convicted. But the conviction in which God works that leads us to repentance is all birthed out of this love that he has for his people. So if there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, the conviction and repentance he's asking us spurred out of love. He loves us. He's got a promise held out in front of us. He wants us to experience life as he defines what life really is. And that's the promise he closes the letter with. Let me get your eyes back to life that is truly life. He who has an ear, let him hear 
what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. All in favor of that, say I. The tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the one who conquers, let him eat of the tree of life. Where's the tree of life? It's in the paradise of God. Now, we need to note something. The tree of life is a pretty big deal in the Bible. All agree with that? Uh, the tree of life is in the beginning, the paradise of God in which God creates in Eden. The tree of life is at the end. Revelation 22, the tree of life in this garden city, this paradise that God will create. And so uh, the, the, the hearers, the believers here would have understood this, 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 under, this, this beautiful picture of the tree of life in the paradise of God. But there's something even more beautiful about it for the Ephesians as well. Does anyone remember what Artemis, the great goddess of their city, what was she a goddess of? Life and fertility. Artemis was supposed to be the goddess who held out life to the Ephesians. And Jesus is communicating to them. That fake life offered by that fake God ain't no life at all. To the one who conquers, who are conquerors? Who are conquerors? The idea of conquering carries with it military and athletic connotations. It's to stand victorious over a foe. Who has already conquered the foe? Christ. Who are conquerors? Those who are truly Christians. The conquering in which we are called to in the Bible, yes, we are to pursue it with a patient, long-suffering, understanding that the final conquering has been done by the final conqueror, and we are hidden and resting in him as he is conquered. To experience the life that is truly life, we believe in Jesus. We are hidden and held by him. And anyone hidden and held by Jesus will endure till the end. Will conquer in such a way that they will enjoy the tree of life in the paradise of God. So let me just ask, bold, boldly, like I don't care how this comes out because I love you and God loves you too. If you're in the room and you've never believed in Jesus Christ, that promise of the paradise of God does not apply to you right now. If you're in the room and you have never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, that promise of the paradise of God does not apply to you. The Bible commands you, God commands you that in order to receive this life in which Jesus holds out to you, you are to believe. You are to respond to this good news message. You are, you are with the help of the Holy Spirit, to see that your sin has separated you from a holy God. That sin means we deserve punishment. We deserve hell forever. But God has held out an offer of life to you that if you will believe in him, if you will call on his name today, he will save you and you will be in the paradise of God where the tree of life is forever and ever ever. Do not delay. 
Do not hold back from today calling on the name of Jesus to be saved. And for the rest of us who have, we say this again together. Lord, make your church passionate for purity and permeating with love. You with me, church? Passionate for purity. Not deviating, not bowing to, to whatever culture says we should. Passionate for what God says is good and true and right. And yet not growing cold as we passionately pursue that. Full of love, stoking the fire of love for God and others as we do. And in the midst of this, as we pursue this, all of us in this room today, I'm sure, have been prodded by the Holy Spirit with where we need to remember and to repent and to return. And so church, with that in our mind, would you just stand in your seats right there and I just want us to sing these words together. I, I told you last week, I love the song our worship team introduced for this series. God, we need resurrender, so we resurrender. The first verse talks about, like, I, I'm, gonna, I'm, do, I'm doing again the things I used to do. But we're going to sing, if, 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 if you're calling, if you're calling, we're running. Stoke the fire. I don't want to be okay with having let my love grow cold and then we just get colder and colder and colder until we're really cold in a box in a grave. Lord, call us back to the passionate love and joy in which you have always intended this life with you to be about. So I know all of us will have work to do with the Lord as the Spirit calls us to remember, to re repent, to return. But to propel us towards this, let's sing these words as our closing.